Greetings, I'm Keith Klein, the host of the Venture Fizz podcast, where I interview the most fascinating people in the tech scene. For the 64th episode of our podcast, I interviewed Chris Jones, the CTO of iRobot. It's likely that you're familiar with iRobot and the Roomba, which is the product that they're best known for. I actually recently made my first Roomba purchase, that being the i7, and I have to admit, I had some pretty high expectations for this product. But let's just say all of my expectations have been totally exceeded. From the ease of setup and use, to the functionality of setting up floor maps in my home and cleaning schedules, to how it recharges itself, and of course the fact that it does an amazing job cleaning our floors. The experience has been truly mind-blowing. So needless to say, I was super excited to interview Chris for our podcast and talk about his career, which spans over 20 years in terms of working with robotics, and the opportunity to learn more about iRobot, the inside look of their engineering organization, and how they build these amazing consumer robots. In this episode of our podcast, we cover lots of great topics like the details of Chris's background growing up in Texas and how he got interested in robotics, the story of how he moved from academia to industry and how he joined iRobot, everything Chris has worked on at iRobot from military robots to the consumer robots we know today, the details behind iRobot's 500-person engineering team, plus some great tips around what to expect during the interview process, the company's mission to support STEM education, the future of robotics in the household, plus a lot more. Okay, quick side note, today's episode is sponsored by Pluralsight. It is amazing what machine learning can do. With mounds of data being harvested every day, there's so much we can learn and create. Pluralsight, the technology learning platform, is using this data for the good of tech professionals everywhere. Their AI helps you see what level your tech skills are at and recommends opportunities to keep learning. Sounds pretty cool, right? And they're looking for help to make their algorithms even smarter. If changing the way the world learns technology through the intersection of design, product, data science, and engineering is right up your alley, then you should apply to work at Pluralsight. If you do want to check out the job opportunities there, please visit pluralsight.com backslash VentureFizz to learn more. All right, without further ado, here's my interview with Chris. Chris, thanks for joining us. Great. Thanks for having me, Keith. Uh, happy to talk today. So I have this vision in my head. Um, you know, uh, you, you have two daughters that you're showing up at one of your daughter's school. It's career day. And um, there's somebody there. His name's Bob, the accountant. And he's like, wait a second. I have to pitch what I do for a living versus the CTO from iRobot. Is, is that a reality? Does that actually happen? <laughs> It kind of is a reality. I do remember uh, going to career day at my daughter's preschool, actually. Mm -hmm. and I remember being, um, uh, I don't know, chastised a little bit by some of the other parents when they saw the schedule. Right. To, uh, this, I can never compete with this. I can never follow with this. You know, my right. job is nothing like bringing robots in and letting the kids play with or build robots. Um, it's hard to compete with. That is, that is true. Yeah, you're like totally a celebrity for a day like that. It's out of control. Yep. <laughs> All right, so going back, where, where did you grow up and what did your parents do for work? I, I grew up in, uh, in Texas, outside of Houston, actually, in a suburb uh, outside, outside of Houston. So, um, you know, my, my family would definitely, my extended family would definitely consider me the city boy being from close to Houston, although we lived in the, in the suburbs and spent a lot of time outside in the fields and so on. But uh, uh, grew up in Texas. Um, uh, my parents, uh, my dad was, uh, is an electrical engineer, um, spent, uh, retired now, but spent 30 years at uh, more or less his whole career at one company. 
um, doing electrical engineering. He was always into um, the latest in technology, computers. I remember having, you know, for from, from my era, Commodore 64 showing up ask, in the house. Okay, so uh, your first computer was a Commodore 64? I, I think it was the Commodore 64 was kind of the earliest, um, through the earliest days of, of kind of getting online, um, Prodigy Online back in the 90s. I remember yeah. my friends coming over, we are in high school and, you know, Prodigy had their trivia, weekly trivia sessions and so on that we'd participate in. So getting exposed to that from the earliest days, uh, from him was great, always that, that newest technology in the house and so on. Um, got me into programming at an early age, you know, 10, 12, something like that, just out of magazines was, um, was really how I got my start in computer science. My mom, uh, you know, for the most part was, uh, was stay at home when I was growing up. Um, she had her own kind of craft business out of the house and was always building things herself uh, and, and selling them at, at her various shows and so on. So it was a good mix of, you know, a technical engineering, dad a mom who was really into to making stuff uh, with her hands and so on so it was a it was always a, an interesting household did you always know that you wanted to work on robotics no surprisingly um growing up i, I think you know if if i have to actually step back and reflect on it i, I never really thought about robots all that much i don't think mm -hmm. uh, up until you know i started working in a robotics lab in in college but growing up all of the fundamentals were there I was always the, you know, myself or, or my friends or the kids who had, you know, the box of old electronic components. You go to the garage sale and buy a, an electric can opener, right, to rip it apart and get the motor out so you can build, you know, whatever it is we're building. Mm -hmm. Take apart old, you know, touchtone phones from the house to get the keypads out to be able to use those to control kind of different homebrew electronics projects. So always taking stuff apart and cobbling together, you know, weird creations. I don't remember there being robots. I do remember there being more like smart home, early, early smart home <laughs> types of things. You know, X10 was involved, but, you know, systems to open a door or of course, as a having a, a younger sister, uh, an alarm system on the door that if someone opened the, the door, you know, <laughs> the, the alarm would throw off. Intruder. So that was all, yeah, exactly, intruder alert. That was always there from just cobbled together uh, stuff out of a box. Um, but then it was more, I, for me, I would say more of the software side. Um, so like I said, getting into programming when I was, you know, 10, 12, something like that. And um, just, uh, I don't remember what magazines they were, but my dad would have the magazines and I would program in basic and, you know, just start building, you know, my own little database applications or whatever they were to keep track of baseball cards or whatever it was uh, at the time. That really is what uh, I think got my interest in that led, you know, more into, you know, again, in my you know, dating myself a touch, but in my high school days, you know, was uh, the, the era of the bulletin boards, right? The online bulletin boards with dial-in modems and so on. So I ran a bulletin board uh, system out of uh, the computer in the house. And, you know, that was, I, I would say more of my interest was that software side of things. And those very early days of, of the internet and connectivity Hardware was still was around. I was doing stuff with my hands with hardware, but that software side was really what the, what got me engaged. I can actually say my my first real job uh, um, was at a store called the Internet Store. It was called the Internet it, Store. It was actually called the Internet Store. <laughs> That's awesome. And this was a place where you know they were offering um, you know uh, uh, um, internet service plans, and it was a storefront. 
and we had a bank of computers and people would come in and literally say, what is this internet? And, you know, we, had let, we had classes and we would teach people how to get online and you know, how to use uh, search and find whatever, whatever it is they were looking for. So um, yeah, I think it was more that software that, that you know, the early days of the internet side of things that really ironically led me into the path of robotics, which is very hardware focused, but uh, that's, that's kind of my, my early days. And is that what happened at Texas A&M when you, um, so you studied computer engineering, mm -hmm. uh, but was it there that you discovered the robotics side of things? It, it was. So my, my, uh, my uh, major at Texas A&M was computer engineering, which was you know, chosen intentionally as, as, as it was a, you know, my dad, I think, pulling, my, pulling me toward that electrical engineering mm -hmm. side of things, but me really being, I would say, more of the computer science side. Um, so computer engineering was the best of both. You had coursework from both electrical engineering and computer science. And, um, you know, it was, you know, at my time there, I, I started realizing that you know, I'd like to try research, like get involved in a, in a research lab here. Um, and uh, given I was, maybe I'll say, less than inspired by some internships I had had in large software companies. Mm -hmm. um, so I, uh, I kind of asked my advisors, like, hey, I think I, maybe I should try research or get involved in that. And it just so happened that there was a junior faculty member who had, who had just started. Um, name was uh, Professor Nancy Motto. Um, she had just started uh, you know, out of uh, her PhD and postdoc and was starting um, uh, as, as a junior faculty member in the department. And she was looking for, interested in you know, undergrads who might be involved, interested in, in getting involved in research. So the timing worked. I worked for her first for a semester for free. And I guess I did well enough that uh, she was inclined to keep me on and actually start paying me um, to work in the lab uh, for the last two years of my undergrad. Um, so that's where I got started was, you know, Nancy uh, taking me under her wing, got involved in the early days of, of her lab and getting it started at Texas A&M, really got me interested in, in robots and robots and Honestly, I, I wouldn't be where I am today in the career I am today, the, the industry I am today, if, if it hadn't been for, for her. I'm still close with her and, and keep in touch with her. So it was a, a very formative uh, coincidence, I would say, at that time. And what were you working on back then? Yeah, so her lab was on uh, you know, what's called uh, motion planning or path planning. So that's how do you allow a whether it's a, a mobile robot running around an environment or a, a complex you know industrial robot arm with all sorts of uh, degrees of freedom or, or axes that you can control how how do those robots plan their path or their trajectory from point a to point b if you want a maybe to fast forward to today if you want to have a roomba figure out how to navigate back through a house to get to its charging station that's path planning how, how does a robot find its way along that path? Or if you want to have a, a very complex industrial robot arm who's trying to put a part into a, an aircraft engine and it needs to navigate through very tight areas and get that part you know, into the location of the engine that it needs to be during assembly, that's also, that's motion planning. How do you control all those degrees of freedom to get the, in that case, the end effector of that arm exactly where you want it without colliding with objects in the environment? So motion planning, path planning, that's, uh, that's what that lab did. We also, it was very uh, tangential, but applied it to um, uh, um, the kind of more of the uh, uh, biomedical sciences side of things. 
um, in terms of using some of those same approaches to path planning to figure out how very complex protein mod uh, um, uh, chains of protein fold, uh, which is a very important and open problem, uh, I think still is. But it's a very interesting multi-dimensional kind of aspect to that lab and those technologies and robotics, but also applying some of those same technologies to, to very, uh, very diverse fields. Now, coming out of uh, undergrad, so you, the first part of your career, you're at Sandia National Labs. What were you working on there? Yeah, so that's, uh, you know, as I said, I wouldn't be where I am without um, working in the lab at Texas A&M with Nancy. Mm -hmm. She, you know, through that time, I actually ended up with two internships at Sandia National Labs while I was still an undergrad. Um, and that led to, you know, a full-time position uh, after graduating um, in the same, with the same team. And that, that work at Sandia was very similar uh, in the sense that it was about more or less about path planning. So how do you, again, how do you enable a robot to find a traversable path to its environment? And the application at Sandia, which I still love, it was such a great, great couple of years, was how do you, how can a, an outdoor mobile robot operating in very rough natural terrain make its way from point A to point B? Mm -hmm. So this was, you know, no kidding, me spending time, you know, so Sandia, by the way, is in Albuquerque. New Mexico. So it's in the foothills of the mountains there in Albuquerque. And no kidding, I would literally spend, you know, days, uh, multiple days during the week out crawling around in the mountains, <laughs> like at robot level, right? Ima imagining I'm the robot. What do I see? Because it's right. surprising. You look at, uh, if you if you reflect on the world as seen by a robot, it's very different than what you'd see. So you look at some of the kind of the bunch of just the, the scrub bushes out in the, the desert in New Mexico. It's like, I can clearly see how to get to point B way across the field here because I, I can physically see it. But once you get down on the ground and pretend like you're the robot with the sensors of robot as you realize it's a maze, right? They can't see over all of those, those bushes and those shrubs or they encounter very difficult terrains when it comes into the Aurora, going into an Arroyo. So kind of a, a wash, that you know, water will will carve out. It's very treacherous and difficult. That uh, it it turns into a really hard problem. So my time at Sandia was on that path planning problem for all terrain mobile robots and getting to spend my time crawling around in the desert um, <laughs> as a robot to help build better algorithms for them. And then on to uh, USC, where that's where you did a lot more research, right? And yep, uh, obtained your PhD. Absolutely. So my, you know, going into Sandia, I knew I was going to go to grad school. That was my full, full intent. That was, you know, everyone at Sandia knew that was my plan um, uh, was to work for a couple years uh, and then make my way to, to, uh, to grad school. My intent at that time was I, I wanted to be a professor. So that's, I'm going to go work for a couple years in a research lab, but then go to grad school, get my PhD and, and have an academic, uh, academic career. Um, so, you know, spent my time at Sandia doing some interesting research work, formulating my ideas for what I wanted to do in terms of a research ad agenda in grad school, applied to grad schools, uh, and uh, USC was the place I wanted to be because I wanted to work on multi-robot, what's called multi-robot coordination. So how do you enable multiple mobile robots to autonomously coordinate themselves to do something as a team? To, to work together to accomplish a single, a single goal. And uh, my advisor at USC was uh, Maya Matarek and she was, that, that's her field, that, that's what she did. Um, so uh, got accepted there, 
um, you know, turned around, accepted that, of course, and, uh, and started uh, work at USC. Um, so started really getting into, at USC, studying how very large numbers of very simple robots can work together. And there's very strong analogies to um, the insect world. So if you look at how a colony of ants, each individually, you know, probably not the most intelligent, <laughs> an ant, an individual ant or a termite, but when you put them together into a colony, into a team, they accomplish very complex things. I mean, the, the, um, uh, the, the nests that they build and so on are enormously complex. And it's amazing how out of just the interaction of a whole lot of very simple ants or insects, you get this enormous complexity, which, which I, I find amazing. And um, so uh, trying to apply and learn some of those same algorithms, like how do they do that, right? There's no, there's no, there is a queen, you know, ant or, or termite, for example, but it's not the queen is directing all the workers, right? Mm -hmm. In that context, they're very distributed. So how do you develop distributed algorithms that can let robots coordinate and work together? Um, so that's what I spent my time doing is trying to work on algorithms that would let a, a group of robots somehow work together to accomplish very complex things when they don't have the benefit of global communication. They may not even see the whole world, right? An individual ant that's putting the next, you know, uh, um, part of dirt when they're building a nest doesn't see the whole blueprint, doesn't have a blueprint, number one, but two, doesn't even see the whole construction process at one time. It's making a very local decision about what do I do right now given what I'm observing and my very observing and my very local view, what do I do that at the end of the day adds up into, into these complex, very, um, uh, yeah, very complex structures. So applying that to robots, and that's what I did is building the, these systems that allowed multiple mobile robots to in effect build structures. When each individual robot didn't, couldn't see the whole state of the construction, um, it couldn't communicate directly with the other robots in many cases, but yet still you end up with a very robust set of algorithms that lets robots work together um, to accomplish a, a global task. And at what point did you decide to, to go into industry, like to you know, step away from academia and go into industry? And uh, how'd you land at iRobot, which based on hearing about your background, it sounds like it was a, a perfect match, like a match made in heaven. <laughs> I, I couldn't have you know, even if I were to go back in time, I don't think I could have planned it better. Right. Um, you know, I, I think it was probably after my first year or so of grad school, I think I started to realize that eh, maybe academia is not necessarily for me. I like the research. I like the cutting edge technology, but I couldn't see myself in an academic career anymore. Um, so I, you know, more or less, once I made that realization, you kind of put your head down and focus on just get your thesis done, <laughs> do your work, publish <laughs> right. what you need to, get your thesis done and get out of there so you can move on with your, with your career. Um, so I did that, I got out fairly, fairly quickly. And also thanks to my time at Sandia, I already had entered grad school with ideas for my research and I already kind of had a, a little bit of a, of a running start. So I got out of, of my PhD fairly, um, fairly, fairly quickly after only um, uh, three and a half years or so. And, um, you know, I, I was kind of, I could see the end in sight, you know, I think it was uh, coming into the, the holiday season, you know, about, uh, you know, at yeah, the end of the year, the holiday season, I remember talking to my advisor um, saying, all right, I'm going to defend, I'm going to finish in May, right? So maybe it's about time to start thinking about jobs, you know, where could I go? 
who, who should I talk to thinking this is going to take me six months or whatever. Um, and uh, surprisingly, so she's like, yeah, we brainstormed a little bit and iRobot was on the top of my list. If I look back in time, this was 2005, you know, iRobot was a small private company. Mm -hmm. Roomba had launched, but it, only two or three years before it wasn't, you know, uh, certainly wasn't a volume, a high volume product at that point. Um, but it, it caught my attention. Now, this is the place if you want to do product and, and real kind of robots, uh, that has a has a, a culture and a background and kind of a pushing the state of technology and research side of things, right? Robots are robots a place to go. It just so turns out that my advisor, um, her PhD advisor was uh, Rod Brooks, who mm, was okay. the, you know, a, a, a very well known uh, a person in the robotics community, co founder of iRobot. Mm -hmm. um, until very recently was, uh, until fairly recently was the director of the CS and AI lab at MIT, for example. Mm -hmm. um, so she, I think, turned around and was like, well, let me, let me shoot Rod a note. Mm -hmm. She did, made the intro, that got to the folks, you know, the day-to-day the -day folks at iRobot. I got a call pretty quickly, had an interview and an offer. I don't know, looking back on it now, it's in a matter <laughs> of weeks. So I'm in, right. I think January at that point saying, Oh, okay. Yeah, and they yeah. want me to start now. Right. Oh, they, really? <laughs> yeah. Don't, you know, you can start this summer once you're, once you've defended it all, um, mm -hmm. start today, we need you to start. So I was like, all right, I guess. Um, so I, I packed my stuff up, um, got to Boston in uh, February, uh, end of February and started the beginning of March. Um, Keep in mind, I'm from Texas. I was, I was um, thinking that. And, Texas, and, USC, California. <laughs> yeah, Southern California. And I get my, I honestly did have a pickup truck. I get my pickup truck and drive across <laughs> the country to Boston. And there were, I don't know, I might be exaggerating a little bit, but about 10 feet of snow on the ground. Um, it, uh, it, it was, it was cold. <laughs> um, so it was a little bit of an adjustment, but, uh, but, it, but it was good. Jumped into the work. Uh, had worked nights and weekends for the next handful of months to get my dissertation written, flew back to LA to defend my, defend and, and finish my, uh, my PhD, um, which thankfully I did. My advisor is very supportive uh, along that process to help me get all that done. Um, and then it was, you know, off to the races at iRobot and full-time focus and so on. So, and uh, I, I don't think we've, we've ever looked back. So it's the, uh, the natural place to be if you, it still is. If you want to, if you're interested in robotics, if you're interested in a company that has always and will continue to push the state of the art, um, I, this is the place to be, right? There, there's not other companies that are 100% robotics, 100% committed to keep pushing that state of the art uh, like iRobot is. So zero regrets when it comes to that. So you've had a, a, is it 13 years now that you've been at iRobot? Yeah, it's about, about 13 years, yeah. So you've had a great career that, you know, you started out as a senior software engineer and obviously worked your way to the CTO position. So what are some of the, the things that you worked on along the way? Uh, along the way, um, a, a lot of my, I mean, all of my time uh, at iRobot is really on the more advanced development side of the house. So it's what's next. What are the technology trends? What should we be trying to work on and risk reduce earlier stage technologies to try to help um, identify new areas, new technologies, new areas for, for iRobot? And a lot of that early days, you know, really was uh, much more focused on our, or was focused on our defense business. 
So for those that don't know iRobot, you know, we've been around since 19, uh, 1990, um, have been doing robots ever since, always with a goal of find opportunities to get robotics and robotics technologies out of the lab and into the real world, have an impact. And um, you know, today we are 100% focused on our consumer products, things like the, the Roomba uh, robot vacuum. Um, but uh, you know, just a handful of years back, we also had a, a very important defense business, selling robots or building and, and developing and selling robots for defense applications, for example, to help uh, uh, military personnel uh, deal with roadside bombs, um, very dangerous situations. Um, and it's a business that continues very strongly. It was uh, uh, spun out into a private company and they, 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 they continue uh, very successfully. Um, so, but a lot of my early days at iRobot was on working with uh, technologies that were geared more toward that, that defense and security side uh, of our business. The funding for that more advanced R&D work, research work came from government sources like DARPA, the National Science Foundation, Air Force Research Lab, you know, places like that, Office of Naval Research, and a lot of work with academic collaborators. Um, so it was very, very much pushing the state of the art through those agencies and working with academic collaborators, where we did stuff like soft robots. Today, it's a, you know, more, uh, more out there in terms of what that is, but we were part of uh, some of the very first research uh, initiatives out of DARPA that we're starting to look at. How do you build robots that are very soft and compliant, that are safe to be around, uh, that can really navigate in very complex and constrained environments? Um, so we had some exciting work with MIT and Harvard uh, and a different one with the University of Chicago out of that uh, effort. That was super exciting to work on novel chemistries, novel materials, novel actuation, um, sensing technologies you had to be thinking about that could all just be very soft and literally squishy, right? Um, was the was the the name of that game? So that was you know some of the some of the first work uh, that I was doing um, uh, uh, here at iRobot, more on that research side of the house. We also did a work uh, some work out of DARPA where we you know really harken back to to my PhD work, which was um, this was in two thousand seven or so which was a program to build very small ro mobile robots that could be deployed into a building and set up an ad hoc communications infrastructure. Imagine little small cellular towers that spread out through a building that, that, that provide a very robust communication infrastructure in the building. Uh, combine iRobot's expertise with building rugged robots for the military, you know, uh, our interest or in, in my background in particular from, from my PhD work is how do you get all those robots to coordinate, right? You want to throw several dozen robots in a building they need to somehow coordinate to accomplish that global goal so that was an exciting effort um, uh, that we got to work on so a lot of those types of things we did some underwater robots we did uh, efforts with uh, collaboration between ground robots and uh, UAVs um, at the time uh, which was also exciting so took us to great places the, the desert in California to do testing or just very bizarre places right to be able to test uh, test robots of these different uh, different different types so that was a lot of my early time was you know uh, government funded advanced research with academic partners really trying to push the state of the art and that's you know transitioned you know over the past handful of years um, partly because irobot as a business is really now focused on on our consumer consumer products and maintaining and, and keep building our leadership position for robots in the home um, but it's, it's transitioned much more into 
technologies that are applicable to consumer products, which you, as you can imagine are very different price points than robots that might be for deep sea exploration. Mm -hmm. um, so that's, uh, that's kind of where the last uh, handful of years has been. And there it's been a lot around uh, how, you know, this is now less and less about me and more and more about the team here at iRobot, of course. Um, that is, how do you build robots that can intelligently navigate the home at a consumer price point? Mm -hmm. How do they understand where they are in the home? I mean, it's very simple questions. If you want Roomba to be able to go recharge on the dock, it needs to know where it is and where the dock is and how does it get there mm -hmm. to go recharge all the way through, you know, through to today with the, with the, the latest Roombas uh, uh, the, that launched uh, here very recently, the i7. Um, that's a robot that actually understands the layout of the home. It knows where rooms are in that home. So you can do things like tell it to go clean the kitchen. And it <laughs> literally, you, you can literally say, you know, Alexa, clean the kitchen and your Roomba will come off the dock, do a beeline through your house to your kitchen, systematically clean the kitchen, then go back to the dock. That is amazing. And then of course, by the way, the dock uh, will, will um, automatically remove all the, the debris from the Roomba's bin, so you don't even have to go empty the bin. Right, uh, I saw that, it's, it's amazing. Like it empties itself now even. It is, you, you have, uh, you know, this is kind of the Roomba that the company has been envisioning for decades, right, that's finally, the technology has come together where you literally have a robot that will systematically clean the entire level of the home uh, and empty itself when it's when it's done with each mission, such that you don't you don't really have to think about a touch a robot potentially for months at a time, right? <laughs> and you just have a clean home, invisible to uh, uh, invisible to you, and voice enabled, voice Alexa. enabled through Alexa, Google Assistant. Uh, yeah, it's a uh, it's that the, the trend is now toward software, right? It's uh, in robotics, everything we do, I mean, hardware is absolutely critical and you have to keep innovating and working there, but software has taken on a new level of importance in the nature of our products these days. And that's driving these capabilities for the robot to perceive its environment, know where it is, know where the kitchen is, right? Know how to think about or systematically plan how to clean the kitchen um, very time efficiently. Um, you know, that, that's really what, uh, what the focus has been over the last handful of years for, for the teams here at iRobot is advancing that state of the art and robot perception software, AI, machine learning is now, is now key to, to our roadmap looking forward. Yeah, so I would think something like smart mapping technology is like incredibly complex. Like, I mean, to get a robot and actually have that just in a consumer home working where it's, you know, just simple for the consumer, but incredibly complex for iRobot to build that. It is, and that's why it's, it's taking, you know, taken us, uh, you know, decades of working on these technologies to get here. And it's, uh, it's a lot in the hardware. So of course you need the hardware to work reliably, to have the intelligence to navigate the home, sense when there are obstacles around, uh, deal with uh, uh, situations where things might wanna get um, uh, entrained into the cleaning system and be able to eject, eject them like a, uh, a carpet tassel, right? The robot's smart enough to reverse the flow of the of the rollers to to free itself of those situations. So there's, there's a lot of intelligence there, uh, even in the hardware. Of course, it's important. But on the software side, to build, have the robot be able to visually see the world, use that information to build a map of that environment, so that it knows and remembers where the rooms are, where my dock is. You know. 
Um, those are those are huge challenges. And as you say, you're, you're dead on in saying that it has to work in homes around the world. Like this isn't a lab experiment, right? This right. isn't something that works once for a YouTube video. Mm-hmm. This is something that a consumer anywhere in the world needs to take out of the box, press clean, <laughs> and it works, right? Right. So there can be no complicated setup process. You know, it needs to just work and work robustly, whether you're on a, you know, carpets in the U S you know, hard floor in, in Europe to Tommy mats in Japan, right? It just needs to, to operate in all of those situations and do so robustly if it's going to be a practical product. So that took a lot of work. <laughs> well, obviously you need an amazing team to accomplish all these uh, amazing feats. So what, what's the, the size of the engineering team at iRobot, you know, both, Hardware, software, et cetera. Sure. So these days, uh, you know, at, at iRobot, our engineering team in total is is about 500, uh, 500 people. Um, and, and you know, speaking to to the importance of software, like I was saying before, in twenty fifteen, about one in eight, uh, one in eight of our engineers were software engineers. One in eight. Uh, fast forward a few years to today. We're about 500 people and about one in three are software engineers. Wow. And I, you know, I think that that trend will continue. Um, the complexity, as we were just saying, the complexity of the software over the past few years and each iteration, kind of each new uh, uh, release of the product and so on, the software complexity is not just getting a little bit more complex. Mm-hmm. It, it's orders of magnitude every jump. Like we, we are it's significant orders of magnitude in terms of complexity on the robot software itself. Um, but these days it's also in the cloud. You know, we have a state of the art connected uh, cloud, uh, connected product cloud solution that we've uh, developed very closely with uh, Amazon AWS. Um, there's a lot of, you know, talent there that we need to, to maintain and keep growing um, that particular set of infrastructure. It's the mobile app side of things, right? Building a, a an intuitive mobile app experience that takes advantage of all of this intelligence that's now embodied in the product itself. So um, that growth in software up to one in three of those 500 um, is needed to, to keep advancing the ball and embedded robot software, all the AI, computer vision uh, types of things we need to do, the cloud software, the mobile app, all of it has to come together to, to, to realize the product you see in the market today. And what's the, the culture of the engineering team like? Like what, you know, are people able to dream big and tackle the world type of projects? Yeah, I, I mean, in general, you know, we consider ourselves builders. So whether you're building, uh, whether you're building the physical hardware, you're building the software, you're building our, our marketing, you know, side of the house, communications there, right? We're all builders that have to build new things to keep at the state of the art, keep at the front of our industry. You know, iRobot is, uh, is, uh, is a leader when it comes to robots in the home. We're a global company, um, and we fully intend on keeping that leadership position by continuing to innovate, and that comes in building new stuff on the hardware software side or uh, across functions in the company, even uh, especially outside of engineering. So company culturally as a whole, we're, we're builders, and certainly that's true on the engineering side of the house is build new things, prototype it, figure it out. Uh, how it works or it doesn't work, iterate and move on. Um, building robots is complicated. <laughs> uh, it's, a, it's a very tight integration or mix of mechanical engineering, electrical engineering, systems engineering, and software that all has to come together and be extremely tightly integrated. 
Um, there are absolutely conditions where, you know, um, you can improve the overall performance of the software by changes in the, in the mechanical engineering of the product. You can accommodate, um, uh, you can allow the mechanical side to be simpler and cheaper by being smarter about your software. And that, that is a double-edged sword too. You can, you can end up causing problems for yourself in the hardware if your software is not working and vice versa. So it's a very tightly integrated system. So the engineering team um, has to work very closely together. Um, we continue to get better at, you know, not thinking about siloed parts of the system because you can't, right? You can't develop the robot software without also thinking about the sensors that are going to be on the platform, the mechanical design, the electrical architecture of the platform. All of those things have to be done together. So you tend to see a lot of people who, uh, who are kind of multidisciplinary, who maybe are software engineers, but very much love dabbling with real hardware and, and building stuff themselves and vice versa. You know, electrical engineers who also have an interest in, in doing uh, firmware development or software development. Um, so you, you tend to see those types of multidisciplinary people um, uh, really be core parts of what we do. Now, iRobot is growing and you're hiring across for lots and lots of positions. So what's the interview process like for if I, you know, send in my resume and get invited in for an interview? What, what can I expect? Yeah, it, uh, you know, it, it can depend a bit to bit on which team you are. You know, I would say from you know, my side of the house, when we, when we're, when we're looking at people, um, interviewing them, we're really looking for, A, do you have fundamentals? So uh, we are looking, right? If you have the coursework um, or the professional experience and the fundamentals, right? If we're hiring you to do C++ development, um, do, do you have evidence of, of being able to do that? Uh, of course, you know, that's kind of, kind of table stakes. But then beyond that, we're, we're really looking for problem solving ability. So if you're trying to work on new technologies, um, can you break free of your thought process, right? Can you think creatively? Can you entertain multiple hypotheses about how something might work? Are you someone who is going to be interested and willing to prototype a bit, fail, learn from that, and figure out what your next design might be, right? So it's, it's you know, thinking about uh, during that interview process of, working through different problem scenarios and it's more about the the thought process to design the hardware design the algorithm um, during that uh, you know that interview panel it's it's more about that thought process that problem solving critical thinking skill and less so about did you get the whatever the python syntax exactly correct mm -hmm. did you put a semicolon in the wrong place right that's less of what we would be looking for um, in that part of the interview process. Um, it's much more about, are you a critical thinker? And are, are you multidisciplinary? Whenever I interview people and I, I bring them in, I give them a tour of our museum. So we have a museum of cool stuff, all sorts mm -hmm. of robots, right? And just give some history, some context, cultural context of why we got to where we are. You know, what do we like? What have we been through? What have we failed at, right? Are all important parts of, of our story. Um, and being able to talk about, you know, all the different parts that go into making the robot from the hardware to the software. And uh, I'll frequently tell people, you're going to be asked a lot of questions today. I guarantee you, you're going to be asked things that you don't know. Mm -hmm. It's okay, right? Say it's, you don't know, right? That, right? That's not my area. It's okay. 
because we will, you know, look to kind of test you a little bit just to see where the boundaries are. Where are you comfortable? Where are you not? There's no necessarily wrong answer. It's just understanding what is the scope kind of of your comfort um, and, and your, your background and expertise. So, um, you know, hopefully it's friendly, um, right? We're, we're not, uh, we, we don't want to, to, uh, to stress people out over this, but we do, you know, we are looking for problem solving. Can you think on your feet a little bit? Um, can you bring some multidisciplinary kind of interest into, into your thinking? So that's a, you know, a, a bit of the flavor of what it might, might be like for anyone. We also, you know, in my side in particular, like to expose people to the most people on our team as possible. Mm -hmm. So, uh, you know, that means it tends to be a long day. Um, but the flip side is that you meet a lot of people and that's good from our side. You know, more of our team gets to meet, you know, potential future colleagues, uh, and be part of that process. But also the candidate honestly gets to see and talk to the maximum number of people from our side mm -hmm. and ask the question, what's it like here to work at iRobot and hear answers from many different people in different contexts, right? Not, you know, one, uh, vanilla answer. That, that you get from, uh, uh, from, from someone. So it gives exposure of, uh, to the candidate of our team much more broadly as well. So that's great. It gives them a, a two way street perspective. Yep, exactly. That's it. That's the intent. Well, the other thing that uh, just shifting gears a little bit uh, that I, I think is just awesome and very meaningful about iRobot is, is um, the work you guys do in STEM. Mm -hmm. So can you talk yep. about that a bit? Sure. I mean, that's a, that's a key part of, of, of the culture of the community. I mean, again, if uh, the culture of the company, again, if you, uh, uh, you know, think about robotics, it's, it's multidisciplinary. It requires some fundamental understanding that spans many different disciplines and a willingness to kind of stretch your imagination about how, how might we build something new right, that people haven't done before. This isn't a rote exercise, it's, a, it's an invention exercise in, in many senses uh, of, of the word. And um, uh, so when it comes to STEM, you know, that's a key passion coming all the way down from, from our CEO, Colin Engel. Like this is something he personally invests a lot of time in and is very committed to um, uh, and advocates for all employees to get engaged uh, on, on STEM activities. Um, every iRobot employee is provided two days a year to pursue STEM. So go talk at a school, go talk at a library, go volunteer at an event, go bring robots to your kids' uh, preschool, right? Whatever it is, get out there and talk about robots and the technology behind it and help the, the next generation of engineers and hopefully future iRobot employees um, have an implicit understanding of the value of that math they're learning in school the value of the scientific method, right? To think through problems, um, to hypothesize and think through potential solutions and validate or invalidate them and move on, right? Learn from it and move on. So uh, STEM is an important part of, of the culture here in terms of reaching back out into the community to help educate the next generation of, of, uh, of technologists. So what's your proudest professional accomplishment to date? Hmm. I, I mean, I, I think it's, it's um, I would have to say it's the, the proudest professional ac accomplishment for our organization. So it's not, not me, it's our organization. And that's the, the dramatic advancements that we've seen in launching 
software enabled features in our products that bring our robots the intelligence that they now have to do to deliver the consumer value that we see in the launch of the Roomba i7 just a couple months ago. Like that achievement is, is huge. This is a company that, as I was saying before, a few years ago was one in eight software engineers, now is one in three software engineers. The software complexity of this product versus what it was a few years ago is orders of magnitude. Um, huge increase in complexity spanning from robot to cloud to mobile app. To pull that off, to get that built, to get it integrated, and to get it ship, shipping in volume around the world is incredible. Right? The transformation that, that our engineering organization had to make in order to make that real and get a product that shipped now and getting rave reviews is, is incredible. Right? That's uh, from a professional accomplishment. The team has, has pulled, pulled uh, some, some amazing feats out successfully um, to see this launch. Yeah, no doubt. A very, very complex and successful launch. Mm -hmm. What about the future? What's the future of robotics in the home? Like, um, you know, what, what, what do you see? I don't know if you have a crystal ball, but uh, 10, 20 years on out. Yeah, I don't have a crystal ball, but uh, I'll give you my shot. And this is, you know, for me, me personally, right. this is where I spend most of my time is thinking about um, and conducting initiatives that are looking at uh, what is the future of robots in the home. Mm -hmm. uh, we are very committed to building practical robots. Roomba is a practical robot. It does a job, it does it well, and it you know, delivers a strong value proposition to the consumer. We are looking at other types of robots for the home. We have a, a, a line of mopping robots that are out, um, for example, and we will continue to advance a portfolio of robots that will do different valuable tasks in the home. Uh, but looking beyond that, uh, even that, uh, is thinking about the role of robots in the smart home. Um, so, you know, our, the robots that we have in homes today actually occupy a very valuable and unique position in the home. Uh, just given the nature of their, the product and what they're trying to do, they're mobile, they're autonomous, and they systematically cover every accessible square inch of the home on average every two days from our consumers. No other product in the home has that ability to roam the home, to understand the home, know where rooms are, know what the layout of the house is. Mm -hmm. That's something that robots implicitly are very good at and need to do just by their core, uh, their core use case. So, you know, I do, we do think um, that there are some very interesting ways that robots and their, their spatial understanding of the home can contribute to providing better smart home solutions to the consumer by allowing the devices in the home to understand where are they in the home? What other devices are around them in the same room such that those devices can all coordinate to provide a smart home experience to the consumer that's much easier to use that's very personalized and tailored to their home, the context of the home that those devices are in, knowing it's in a kitchen versus a living room, knowing that there are these other devices in the kitchen with it, can mean that those devices can coordinate in ways that they can't today. So we, we do believe that robots in the home uh, will provide a very unique set of value to the broader smart home ecos ecosystem. And to that end, you know, we are, 
um, collaborating with many other players in the smart home today, exploring some of these new concepts. What new value can be unlocked in the smart home given this new, new kind of influx of, of product in the home um, and the intelligence that, that robots in the home can give? So we'll see where all that leads. We're very excited about it. We believe that there's a strong future in how robots can, can participate within the smart home. And uh, you know, that's, that's my crystal ball, is that robots will, reading from my crystal ball, is that the future smart home will really be uh, enabled in very significant ways by, uh, by robots in the home. Well, I can't wait to see what happens. So what do you like to do outside of work? That's a great question. I think everything is consumed either by work or, or uh, spending time with the family, teaching, <laughs> trying to teach the kids how to program. That's my goal these days is uh, pass that skill on a little bit, try to get them excited about, uh, about programming and building stuff in general um, uh, is where most of my time outside of work goes is, is helping them try to, try to uh, encourage that spark in them as well. That's awesome. Well, Chris, thank you so much for taking the time to walk us through your background and your professional history and all the amazing things that are happening at iRobot. Sure. It's my pleasure. Thanks for the time, Keith. And obviously, uh, iRobot is hiring. So to check out their job openings, you can go to their biz page on VentureFizz or certainly iRobot's careers page. And there's lots of really cool opportunities to explore. Chris, thanks again for your time. Great. Thanks, Keith. Well, that's our show. I hope you found it useful and entertaining. If you did, please make sure you subscribe so you'll get future episodes. Also, please consider leaving us a five-star review and share this podcast with all of your friends and colleagues in the industry. It all really helps us out. Last but not least, don't forget to visit VentureFizz.com, the most trusted source for tech and startup jobs, news, and insights. Thanks for listening, and I'll see you next time.